Someone got the time. What's the time? Quarter two. All right. Oh, that's good. That's good. Just figure out how long I've got to preach here. You know, lock the doors. No. Uh, we're back in Ephesians. Uh, it's been an incredible letter for us to study as a new church. And so it's nice to jump back in. Uh, we'll be here for a while and then we'll take a little bit of break as some guest preachers come in to relieve. We're going to have Brendan, Pastor Brendan from the other church, come to preach. We're going to have Pastor Patrick come in to preach as well um, over some time. And maybe even uh, Mr. Richard Song come to preach toward April. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm trying to, I thought if I just throw it out there now, he has to do it. It's like with Doug and leading Korean worship last week, which is awesome. It's like, just announce it and it will happen, you know. <laughs> Um, All right, so Ephesians chapter 4, if you've got your Bibles, please turn there. Uh, We've named this series Planned in Eternity, Displayed in Community, uh, because really it captures some of the ideas. There's so many ideas in Ephesians, but we have this beautiful um, picture of God's eternal plan of salvation to rescue sinners from any background, Jew or Gentile, scandalous or religious, self-righteous, to rescue anyone, and he planned it in eternity, and then he's going to bring them and put them into new little communities, new humanities, new societies all over the world. And so God's eternal plan is displayed in little local church communities. And that's in some ways how the book of Ephesians is split. Chapters 1 through 3 sort of deal with a lot of the the high-level doctrine of God's salvation. And then as Paul turns in chapter 4, verse 1, and says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, he transitions into three chapters of intense practical application where this identity of who we are and what we've been called out of and what we've been called into needs to look like something. And Paul has a very particular idea of what he wants it to look like, um, born by the Spirit, and that's what the rest of this um, book of Ephesians is about. John Stott said it like this, Now the apostle moves on from the new society to the new standards which are expected of it. So he turns from exposition to exhortation, from what God has done to what we must be and do, from doctrine to duty, from the credenda to the agenda, from mind-stretching theology to its down-to-earth, concrete implications in everyday living. The mission statement of our church is to know, apply, and proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Because true Christian living is not just filling our heads with all these doctrines. It's filling our head with doctrines that affect our heart, that then come out in our hands and our feet in the way that we live, the way that we love, the way that we speak, the way that we gather. And so the rest of Ephesians is going to be a bit of a punching bag to our soul because we're going to be hit left and right with God's Spirit teaching us how to apply these magnificent truths which may be threatening to you because you might come from a background where, you know, it was nice to hear a really good expositional sermon where there was great doctrine um, and you didn't feel that pressure to actually have to do it. Uh, Well, God doesn't let us off like that because he wants better for us. Uh, And so as a result, I think of preaching through this next section of Ephesians, God is going to continually refine and mature and, you know, get rid of some of those impurities in our own lives and in our church life. Um, It's going to be painful, um, at times, it's going to, but it's going to lead to our ultimate good. 
So let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. Um, and that verse 1 is really the hinge point that the, turns the ship of Ephesians. So let's read along. I therefore, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus, a prisoner for the Lord, he's in chains as he writes it, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Would you pray with me? Well, God, the Father of all and in all and through all, would you bless the preaching of your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not sure if you're a cricket fan. Um, I am. And one, one of the things about, you know, the summer is we get to watch lots of cricket, praise the Lord. Um, but one of the things about Australian cricket team is if you are good enough and experienced enough and you've got that ability to get in the team, when you join the team as your first debut test, what they do is they pull you out into the middle of the stand and there's a special ceremony where they, they get the captain of the, the cricket team and the, the new player. And what the, play, the captain does is he gets this it looks like a tea cosy. It's, the, it's called the baggy green. It's the special hat that all the Australian cricket players wear. And if you're good enough to make the team, the captain gives you your very own baggy green cap that stays with you for the rest of your cricket career. You get this one cap, and you're meant to really play with that one cap through all the sweat, through all the eight hours standing in the sun, and you keep that one cap through your whole cricket career. It has your number engraved on it as to what number you are entering the cricket team as. And wearing that cap, you symbolize and represent the great and illustrious Australian cricket team, the men's cricket team. And wearing that cap, you're meant to demonstrate that beautiful, amazing reality on the field and off the field. You know, to, to wear a baggy green is to represent Australia in cricket, you know, which for some of you is like, who cares? But, but for me, it's like, yes, that's a significant and important thing. So much so, actually, that Shane Warne recently, who's one of the greatest cricket players that ever lived, Australian player, um, he sold his baggy green cap to raise money for the Bushfire Relief Fund. Uh, and the highest bid, it was over $1 million um, to buy the hat. Uh, and so it kind of represents some of the value, the dignity, the, you know, the, the gravity that goes towards wearing a baggy green. And it also represents why we get so um, disappointed in, in cricket players or, and indeed any sports team um, when the players don't live up to the calling that they've been given. You know, a couple of years ago, a few of our best players in, in the world really cheated um, on the field. They knew what they were doing. They purposely cheated. And so they were banned from playing the sport for a year because they weren't living and they weren't playing in a manner worthy of the baggy green that they were wearing. And it happens whether they're playing like that on or off the field. You see, the baggy green represents something to the Australian cricket team. It's a signifier of your position, your status, this great privilege. Uh, and you can only get it if you're one of the best cricket players in all the country. 
And in some ways, the Apostle Paul is kind of using this imagery of a a special bestowal, a special thing that is meant to represent the way we now live in Ephesians chapter 4. He begins by saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's saying, based on everything in chapters 1 through 3, the fact that you were purchased from death to life, the fact that the sovereign God in all eternity chose you and put his love upon you, the fact that he's given you his Holy Spirit as a guarantee, the fact that he's now united Jew and Gentile together into one church, all those things, that's your calling. In light of all of that, live in a manner worthy of that. Paul's saying, you've got your baggy green on, now live like it. And that's really where he goes for the rest of this book. He's saying, Because of what God has done, you ought to live in such a way. Uh, And he's going to give us many, many different commands about purity, about maturity, about sexual holiness, about how we operate as a church community, about how we operate as families, how we operate in the spiritual realm. All these things are based upon our calling. But the difference between our calling and the fact that we're meant to live up to it with our baggy green on, our spiritual baggy green, our our jersey from Jesus, the difference between that and the cricket team is that we didn't earn it. We weren't on the team by our special ability. We didn't get there because we were the fastest bowler or the best spinner or the best batsman or batswoman. I've never said that. Yeah, batswoman. I guess you could say that. Bat lady. That's a superhero. Um... We didn't get on by our ability. We got on by Jesus. And so, you know, joining Jesus' team is, you know, even better because you get the baggy green. You didn't have to do anything to earn it. Um, Our pastor or our friend Dave Taylor said it like this. We don't earn our salvation, but we exhibit it. We don't merit our salvation. We mark it. We don't deserve our salvation. We demonstrate it. And that's really what the rest of Ephesians 4 through 6 is all about. We're wearing a baggy green team. So let's live and represent our great king um, in our church and in our homes and in our community. So what does it look like to live worthy of the calling to which we've been called? What is, you know, where, where does Paul going with all of this? Well, his first and primary place, he, he turns us, he says, you've got your baggy green on, baggy green on, therefore live like this. And the first place he turns to is unity in the church. In fact, from verses 1 through 17 of, or 16 of chapter, 17 of chapter 4, that's Paul's primary focus, the unity of the believers, uh, because that's where, what he's been talking about in chapters 2 and 3, and so he moves straight there. Unity, to be in harmony with one another, to have diversity, yet love and difference. Um, and, and that's what Paul is going to be talking about for the next um, 17 verses. And we're just going to look at six of them today. And so the, the point of today's message, and we're going to see, I'll explain more in a moment, is this, if you want to take down a, you know, a, a main idea, is that we are all called to diligently pursue unity in our church community. That's where Paul's going to go with this. He's saying, live in a manner worthy of a calling, which means we are all called to diligently pursue unity in our church community. To unpack this six verses, even though it's only six verses, actually jam-packed with heaps of stuff, four points, and I won't say them all because you'll forget them, and I'll just tell you them one by one, but four points today to unpack this idea of church unity in our community. So point number one, 
the necessity, the necessity of church unity. Read verse 1 again. I'm going to, it's such a, it's just a, we're going to keep coming back to it every week almost. Verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So what is the calling? Well, immediately in the context, if you go back into chapter 3, Paul has been talking about the great mystery that now God's salvation is not just for this Jewish nation, this Israelite people, these um, you know, small subset in the, in the Middle East, but it's actually for all the world, for anyone can come to Christ. And we're all the beneficiaries of that you know, broad scoping salvation. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says the calling or the mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the calling to which we've been called is a shared calling, a unified calling for any person from any race, tribe, nation, based on any sin that they've done in their life, based on any you know, works that they haven't completed, Anyone can be in, because we're all now one same body. And the point of the gathering of the Gentiles and the Jews, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10, is that through the church, this gathering, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So God's plan, God's call on all of our lives, is to bring together different people like you look around the room, like last week was a great example about all the different foods, all the different languages, all the different backgrounds. Bring all these differences together, slam them into one community, show how they can love and glorify God together with one voice, and then put them on display to the heavenly realms. And therefore, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of that calling, which means pursue radical unity in your church community. Pursue radical unity in your church community. This calling is so high and lofty. God, you know, there's more going on than we can see here this morning. The heavenly realms are viewing in on this little gathering, and not through Facebook Live, but through, you know, through their you know, spiritual abilities. They can see what's happening. And they can see whether or not we're unified or not. They can see whether or not we're actually in harmony with one another, truly deeply in our hearts. And so Paul goes on in verse 3, and he says this. It's, a, it's really a command. Um, the, the ESV doesn't capture it so well, but it says in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The NIV makes it a little bit more clear. Make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So the necessity of community is it's not, of unity rather, it's not an optional command. You know, unity is not just like, well, if we get to it or, you know, it's an optional add extra for church. I mean, we can have our sex, uh, sects, we can have our divisions, sorry, we can have our divisions, we can have our differences, we can have our cliques, and if, you know, we're really mature, maybe we'll have some unity to go along with it. That's not what Paul's saying here. This is not an optional command. Because the unity is not something we create. It's already been given to us through the Spirit. We are unified. So now we need to live like it. We maintain it. And that's why the, the necessity of the command is be eager to maintain the unity. We don't have to create it. We maintain it through the Holy Spirit. 
We can be eager for many things in our life, for you know, kids to start school, to find a husband or wife, to get the next car, holiday, achievement, career advancement, whatever it is. We can even be eager for things in church, eager to come for worship, eager to have a nice coffee, eager to put our kids in kids' work. Whatever it is, we can be eager for. Paul is saying here, there's one thing you must necessarily be eager to do. Maintain the unity of our community. You see, because our unity was bought by the blood of Christ. It was made possible through the Holy Spirit. It was planned by the Father. Yet we have a responsibility to maintain it and foster it. So that's point number one, really just simply, the necessity of unity is that it flows out of our calling. It flows out of God's eternal plan to bring differences together into one body. And so our calling as individual members of this church is to diligently pursue unity as a church community. However, the reality is, is that when you put together and you smash together different cultures, different creeds, different languages, different value systems, East and West, and, you know, individualism versus collectivism, you know, consumerism and all these different things, you smash together all these different languages and genders and ages and intelligences and sophisticationises, it creates problems. Unity is not the natural thing that will happen in a church community. Unity is not normal. In fact, sadly, it's often not the norm in churches. Often what happens is if you leave people to themselves, we'll click off into little groups. And you'll get the people that are all one language here and one language here and one group here and the people that like this here. And it's not that those things are wrong. It's just that if we're not careful, we can end up being 17 different churches within one church and not one unified, diversified church. You see, God's unity is not uniformity. And our divisions aren't meant to create, or our differences aren't meant to create division. So what do we do when we have this mix and mash of all different ages and stages and people that are thinking about their kids all the time, people who never think about kids? How do, we, how do we be unified as one point of people? That doesn't make sense. One group of people. Well, that leads us on to point number two, the strategy for church unity. The strategy for church unity. You see, it could be tempting maybe to create a structure or a policy. Everyone must be unified and, or create a group, unity group and unity night. And we have a night where we talk about being unified, but that's not what Paul says here. In fact, um, the, the strategy Paul gives us, each individual, and this is all of our responsibility, is actually to change who we are and to be the type of people that foster and create unity ourselves. The answer is not a policy or a structure, but a type of person. So let's read verses 1 through 3 again, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Paul's strategy for church unity for the Ephesians. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What does that look like? Well, walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The strategy for unity in our little church community in SG Para is for us to be the type of people that create unity because of the character qualities we have from the inside. Unity starts with you. 
something here. And unity starts with me. I didn't, think, I didn't plan that, but that was good. <laughs> unity starts with you. Come on. Someone tweet that. Okay. So Paul lists five qualities really here, five things that kind of can help us um, become a church that's unified. And if we take these on and actually by the Holy Spirit live these out, unity will be much easier and we'll actually be able to maintain the unity that God has created. So number one, he says, walk with all humility. Humility is a necessary ingredient for unity because humility is that sense of considering others more significant than yourself, looking not to your own interests but to the interests of others. Humility is not thinking you know, less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. And so Paul here is saying to the Ephesians, not just have humility like a little touch of humility, but all humility. See, if we enter church with people that genuinely think other people are the heroes in this church and you're not, who genuinely think differences and the way God has wired someone else in this room is a gift from God and it's not just an annoyance and different to you, so therefore it's wrong. If we come in with humility, we're actually able to start to appreciate and love and enjoy the differences that we see. Humility is vital for church unity because humility is not trying to put yourself forward, it's trying to put others forward. Humility is looking to find evidences of grace in other people's life, to champion them, to see where God is at work first rather than to see the difference that annoys you. Secondly, he says to walk with gentleness or complete gentleness if you put the all humility and link it with the gentleness. Uh, the gentleness here is really the quality of not being overly impressed by one's sense of self-importance. It's this sense of like you're gentle because you're not thinking you need to puff up your chest. You're not needing to assert or dominate. You're not needing to prove yourself. In fact, John Stott says it like this, um, you know, and the other way of translating this word is meekness. He says, So meekness is not a synonym for weakness. On the contrary, it is the gentleness of the strong, whose strength is under control. It is the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself and the servant of others. See, if we walk with gentleness in church, we can control our strengths to put other people forward. We can control our need to be seen that others might be seen. We can be meek, knowing that, you know, if people don't recognize, you know, the good or the gift or whatever's going on in my life, that's okay. I know what God has done and I'm excited about you. Thirdly, he tells them, so not only walk with humility, walk with gentleness, then he says, walk with patience. A more precise translation may be long-suffering. You know, to walk with patience is actually to be like God. You know, in a church where you smash all these different people together, there's going to be many opportunities for things that annoy you. Patience is going to be your friend. See, the Lord himself is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And there's going to be many times in our church as we go forward as a church plan and the, the, the shiny newness wears off where things just are frustrating and annoy you. But if you, from the inside out, can become like your creator God and be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, you will foster and maintain unity in our church. Number four, you're bearing with one another in love. 
um, to bear with one another is to actually allow them to be them without necessarily needing to correct or change them in the moment. Someone's weakness, someone's immaturity, someone's difference, whether it be sin or just preference, bearing with one another in love is not just like, that person annoys me, I'm just going to avoid them for the rest of our church life. That's not bearing with, that's just avoiding, that's not unity, that's division. Bearing with one another is genuinely loving someone even in their difference. And recognizing that God is slow in working in people's lives and God's been patient and slow with you. And so bear with one another. Allow people to walk at the pace that God has given them and not trying to rush them along and get frustrated that they haven't figured it all out yet. Because, you know, no one has figured it all out yet. And also being aware that there's probably someone in the church bearing with you. <laughs> you think, oh man, there's all these people i got to bear with. Yeah, well, probably the person that you're bearing with is also bearing with you. Um, so be, keeping that in mind will help you to be unified and maintain it. Number five, and it, it was the command we saw in point one, eagerly maintaining the unity that the Spirit has made. You see, we don't create this unity. It's made by God. But it's our responsibility to become these type of people that fosters and maintains the unity that we have that was bought by Christ. And it doesn't come about by accident or passivity. It's an active, deliberate pursuit. In fact, the, the word eager there doesn't, like, it, like oh, eager. The other translations is like, take pains. It's this striving after. It's with every ounce of your effort, Maintain unity. This is not like a side issue for church. This is one of the central issues of Christianity is a unified church. Because the unity of the church demonstrates the power of the gospel. It demonstrates what God's plan was from eternity past. And so for us, we are to be eagerly maintaining it. There's many opportunities to put this into practice. Um, but it's got to be something that we're actually actively always thinking of how can I bring unity how can I help you know patience how can I stop a brother from gossiping how can I remove myself from a situation that's tempting me rather than just giving in to your natural self which is why Paul's strategy for church unity is not a program or a policy because that's not going to change anything it has to start with our heart a heart that is freshly molded by grace that is given to you. A heart that is constantly reflecting on the fact that God is bearing with you. That he bore your sin. Therefore, you can bear others and forgive as you have been forgiven. We are all called to diligently pursue unity in our church community. It's our job. As we start a new year, it's our calling. But is it just unity for unity's sake? You know, is it just world peace? You know, <laughs> you know, are we just trying to have like a nice little club where we all, you know, sing kumbaya and we obliterate our differences and we just move on because it feels nice to be unified? Well, Paul is, is not just saying unity for unity's sake. Uh, churches have tried to do this. The World Council of Churches formed to try and unify the denominations across the world. But what they did was they, they got rid of the bedrock of truth. 
uh, the United Church, mostly in Australia, has got rid of all their firm foundations of truth. And now you go to most uniting churches and you'll see a meditation and yoga class and you'll see all you know, different things because they've lost the foundation of our unity, which is truth. And that leads us to point three and where Paul goes in the rest of these verses. Point three, the foundation for church unity. See, Paul is saying, live in a manner worthy of a calling, take on these characteristics and qualities, this will produce unity, this is the strategy. And then he launches in, in verse 4, not with any conjunction, not with any reason, just with pure affirmation of truth. And he gives us this doctrine of God, really, and seven affirmations of oneness around the Trinity. So let's read them again, verse 4. So eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, the foundation of Christian unity is not kumbaya and holding hands and, you know, enjoying each other's presence. The foundation is the oneness and unity of our God. The foundation is the truth of the gospel that we are unified because blood was shed, that we are unified because the Son of God bore our sins. Therefore, we can bear with one another. And so Paul takes pains to remind the Ephesian church, three, you know, Spirit, Son, Father. So firstly, what the Spirit has done. There is one body, verse 4, and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. He wants the Ephesians to be reminded that they are actually one body. Though they used to think, especially the Jewish Christians, they were two. But no, they're one. They're unified. And who did it? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that's brought them one. And as one body, they actually share one eternal hope. You know, in this room, each one of us is an eternal creature. No one in this room will cease to exist at the end of their life. Every single one of us has either eternal hope or eternal misery awaiting them. And so Paul is trying to remind the Ephesian Christians, we share the one hope. One day, all of us will worship in glory together. One day, the person next to you will be called out by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Therefore, be unified with them today. Enjoy their presence today because the Lord himself saw it fit to save them. Secondly, he moves on to this affirmation of what the Son has done. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We all share Jesus Christ. The thing that ultimately unifies us is Him and Him alone. We share Jesus, therefore we can be unified. We all came in through the same door of baptism. That's why baptism is so important, because it represents that you have died to your sin and you've been raised with Christ, and that is depicted in the baptism ceremonies. You go under and you come up, and that demonstrates and dictates to the church, this person is one with Christ, therefore I'm one with them. You're unbaptized, well, it demonstrates maybe you're not in Christ. Why would you not go under the water and come up again to demonstrate it? We share one Lord one faith, one baptism, to demonstrate the unity that was brought for us in Christ. And if you aren't yet a Christian here this morning, 
The amazing thing, we've said already, is that you can join the unity of this community, not as, as a guest, but as a true member, because of our one Lord Jesus Christ. Because he died the death that you should have died, and he took the penalty for the sin that we ought to have taken the penalty for, for all of the ways in which we've ignored God, done our own thing, bent our conscience. We haven't even lived up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. Yet he's made a way through his son so that any single one of us can enter in and be full members, not half members, not quarter members, not like progressively becoming loved by God. No, through faith in Christ, the one faith, the one Lord, and the one baptism, you are in and you are one with God and one with one another. And that is open to anyone in this room who puts their faith in Christ. And if you've been coming for a time and you feel like, oh, it'd be a bit embarrassing to admit that or to have to say, I'm not yet a Christian, I've become a Christian, no one here is going to judge you. <laughs> no one here is going to make that embarrassing for you. Instead, we're going to rejoice with you. So if you're not yet in and one with Christ, may I plead with you and urge with you, join him today because he's made it possible. And finally, the, the final foundation that Paul is trying to say that helps them to understand their unity is God. Verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesian Church, Parramatta Church, we can be unified because we have one God and He is over all, sovereign in bringing us together. He is in us all and working through us all. There is no one in Christ who is here this morning who's God, who God has not sovereignly brought here today. There's no new member of this church that's an accidental member. God, the Father of all, is working through all to bring us into this one little local body to be unified as one. Our unity was bought by the blood of Christ, made possible through the Spirit. It was planned by the Father. It's maintained and brought about by us. So our unity must be built on the foundation of the gospel and the gospel alone. Being excited about starting a new thing or being excited about a particular type of worship or a particular type of teaching or a particular type of program will not last our unity cannot be based on anything else than the foundation of truth, which is why we do our starting point course, so that we're all unified on the doctrines of the Scripture. So that's point three, the foundation of our unity. Finally, point number four, the practice of church unity. Brothers and sisters, unfortunately, in many churches, as I've said, disunity is all too common. We split into different services based on preferences or demographics or age groups or music style. We cater to services and bought the consumerism of our culture. Uh, but in this church, we don't want to be like that. We want to be one church that prefers and serves one another, that changes our style and our way we do things to benefit and bless the weaker and, and the different. We don't want to become pigeonholed into one type of demographic. We want to be intergenerational, multi-ethnic, multi-background you know, type of church. Not just a church for people that are, get it all right all the time, but a church for anyone in any circumstance. But disunity is going to be the default for our church unless we eagerly pursue it. 
Um, and disunity is something that is gravely dangerous for a local church. So much so that the Apostle Paul said in the book of Titus, he said, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. It's a heavy verse. I mean, it's directed to Titus as a leader. It's not like, you can't do this. <laughs> it's not your job. But it, it demonstrates the high you know, importance of unity in our church. A divisive person, warn them once, give them a second chance. But if they continue to cause division amongst what God has brought together as one, ask them to leave. Now, this is not division like over petty things. This is like serious division. But nonetheless, it kind of puts it into context, doesn't it? Now, thankfully, that is not our story. You know, this is not a corrective message for our church. I think one of the greatest things about our little church plan is that we are unified, that there is a beautiful, joyful unity that we experience every week. Um, but brothers and sisters, this is an evidence of grace in our life that we need to maintain and eagerly pursue and even make better. So how are we going to go about doing that? Well, how can we put it into practice? I want to give you a little scenario, okay? Just, just, uh, just imagine, you know, and to kind of, imp, like, how could you practically put these abstract truths into practice? Okay, so just imagine in your life group, there's someone who you find just that little bit annoying, okay? They're a little bit frustrating. They're not your favorite type of person. They're, they're six foot four, they have blonde hair, and their name rhymes with Kylie. Just imagine someone like that is in your life group, and you're a quiet person, and he's a loud person, and you, 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 know, you just don't want to talk in group, but he always makes you answer questions, and you know, he gets passionate about things that you're not passionate about. He talks about cricket. You hate cricket. What are you meant to do? You know, he, he says things that seem insensitive at times. You're like, oh, well, this guy, does he care about anyone? What would you do if there was someone, just that mythical person in your life group? Now, if you were left to yourselves, just your natural tendency, first step would be like, you know, passive-aggressive avoidance. I'm just not going to be, you know, try and talk to him, get away from him. But over time, as you avoid and don't actually deal with it, you'll start to, like, sinfully judge this mythical person. So, but he doesn't care about anyone, you know. And you start to look not for evidences of grace, but for evidence of how they suck. And then over time, you try and suppress that. But if you're left to yourself, you'll eventually start to maybe let it slip to someone just like, how annoying is he? He's so frustrating. Like, he's so tall. Like, why is he so tall? How's he so tall? You know, whatever it is, you just start to gossip and you'll start to sow seeds of disunity. Just, just a little, like, a little critique, a comment, or, oh, there he goes again. You know, that kind of thing happens. And then over time, if you leave it long enough, you start to undermine. You start to try and get rid of these type of people or you start your own little group where the people, you know, that type of person isn't there. This happens all the time in community. Um, it's so natural and obvious, and, and we can just totally sanitize it and be like, oh, it was nice to start a new group, but all we did was just transfer the problem somewhere else. That is not Paul's vision. If that annoying person is in your group, sorry to that group, um, if you're that annoying person with all you know, their frustrating elements, and if you uh, find yourself opposed to anyone by nature, just you know, natural personality in this church, here's how to put this into practice. Remember the doctrines. We are one body. 
that person has God's Holy Spirit in them. And one day I will be with them forever in eternity. Remember that the one Lord Jesus Christ shared his blood for that person's sin. That they adopt and have the one faith. And that they have passed through the waters of baptism. Remember that our one God, who is in all and through all, is working in their life. Start with the foundations of those truths and then start working on yourself. Come into that situation with all humility, realizing that maybe you don't see things right. Start to see them and their differences as something beautiful and something that God is doing in their life that maybe is you, you know, not your natural preference, but it's actually something good. Deal with them with all gentleness, knowing that you don't have to change them, correct them, or move them in this very moment. Bear with them with all patience. Allow them to be themselves, and don't try and conform them to your pattern immediately. You can pray for them. You can ask God to change them. You can ask God to reveal, is this just a preference or a sin issue? And then finally, in all things, eagerly strive to maintain unity with that person, no matter the personal difference you have. And eagerly maintaining unity might even go to the harder elements, which is peacemaking, where actually that person, what they're doing is not just a difference of personality, it's sin. And so rather than just avoiding it, avoiding, if you can't avoid it anymore, then you need to strive to maintain unity, which means you need to approach that brother or sister and actually bring them an observation, say, hey, I noticed you do this, why do you do that? Or actually, when you said this, I felt grieved and hurt by that. Um, I, I, I think you've sinned against me in this way. And you actually take up what the Bible has to say about biblical peacemaking in Matthew 18. And you bring your sins one-on-one. And then if they don't listen, you bring two or three witnesses along. And if they still don't listen, you bring the elders and the church involved. And then you try and resolve it for the sake of unity. And that demonstrates how serious the problem is and how serious our need for unity is. But all, at all times, you are eager not for them to just go away. You are eager for reconciliation. You are eager to be able to put your arm around them as a brother or sister in Christ and say, I love you for who you are. That's what Paul is aiming towards. That's what Paul is hoping for, for the Ephesian church, despite all their differences. So, in these short six verses, we've seen the necessity of unity, which is we're commanded to strive for it. We've seen the strategy, which is not a program, but it's actually to become a different type of person. We've seen the foundation that it's the gospel and the gospel alone. We can only be truly unified if it's based around truth. And we've seen the practice that actually you can put this into practice and we ought to put it into practice and we're going to need to put it into practice. Because if you stick around, if we stay together as a church long enough, we're going to annoy each other. We're going to frustrate each other. Decisions are going to be made that you don't agree with and you don't like. Ideas are going to be put forward that you think are absolutely stupid. (laughs) But they're going to happen. And time and time again, our community and our unity is going to be threatened by our sin. And we can't avoid it. This is not a perfect church. We only have a perfect Savior. And so as we go about living as imperfect sinners in this unified community... Brothers and sisters, it is all of our responsibility 
to diligently pursue unity in our church community. And as we do this, it brings glory and honor to our great God and Savior. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, we want to thank you that we can have a unity. We can have a oneness, a harmony in this local church expression because of what you've done for us and in us through the cross. We thank you that our hope is not in each other, but ultimately it's in your son. And Lord, we pray in us that you would protect us from the evil one and from the evil within us. Lord, we know that we are going to be the problems of church unity, not someone else. Lord, would you fill us with humility, all humility? Would you fill us with all gentleness, with all patience? Would we bear with one another in love and would we eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit? Lord God, this is not going to happen automatically. You must do it. And so, Lord, I pray in us that you would, for your glory's sake and for the spread of your gospel, And pray this in Jesus' name.